forward anyway. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew 24 because we have work to do. Matthew 24, we are continuing through the Olivet Discourse, and I want to remind us of the questions that Jesus is answering. This is not a uh, theological treatise on eschatology or the end times. This is not just a systematic theology lecture that comes out of nowhere. The disciples have heard and seen certain things. Jesus says, Jerusalem, I am not going to see you again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has promised a kingdom that is coming and all of the honor and the righteousness and the justice that comes with that. He has said that the temple is going to come down and the disciples are processing a ton of information related to the king and his coming kingdom, related to the fact that there's going to be a delay, related to the fact that there's going to be glory and hardship and how this all intersects. And so they say, when is this happening and how are we going to know? When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' answer to that question. And he began broadly These are the things that are going to characterize the struggle until the end in an increasing way, like labor pains up until the very end. But then last week, we opened up and we started really in verse uh, 15, and we saw that there are some very specific things that are going to happen. There's going to be a particular event, the abomination of desolation, that kicks off a period of trouble such as has never been before and never will be again. It talks about this unique time that is going to come, not just a tribulation, but a great tribulation. But even through that time of trouble, God shows his care and his knowledge and his mercy on his people, even in the midst of judgment. And today, as we continue through Matthew 24, we're going to look at those signs that immediately precede the coming of the king, because the king is coming again. And these are the things that will help us to understand that it is not only coming at some point, but that it is imminent. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses 23 to 28. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Lord, as we think once again about the end, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would help us to bring uh, dependence to the text, that we would look to you for clarity, not only on what it means, but what we're supposed to do about it. Lord, it is good for us to see that you have a plan. It's good for us to know the details of that plan. You've given these things for our benefit, for our growth, for our encouragement. Lord, as important as the details are, help our hearts to be grounded in the fact that the King is coming again. And God, I pray that that truth would shape every day of our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when important people show up, we expect certain things to happen and kind of how important you are can be gauged by the reaction to people when they come. When I uh, come into a room, nothing happens. And that is because I don't bring a whole lot of gravitas to any particular situation, I'm just Matt. Um, When the president flies into Los Angeles, it doesn't matter whether he's here for two hours for a fundraiser or a week for a bunch of political conferences, when he comes in, things happen. 
the airport shuts down, streets are shut down, traffic is backed up, and whether you've been watching the news or not, you understand that somebody of great importance has just come into this place because people respond a certain way. When we're talking about Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is coming to consummate his kingdom, when he comes, the signs are unmistakable. That has been the series uh, that, that he's been talking about here. Uh, that there are things that are coming that indicate that he is close. Labor pains produce the child, and like the earth groaning under the labor pains, these things are going to increase until the kingdom comes about. And as we go through these things, there's got to be the sense of joy and anticipation in knowing that whatever struggles come, whatever hardships this world brings and offers, uh, whatever evil Satan intends to accomplish, that God overcomes those things. Today, we really get a preview of the end, of the final victory of Jesus Christ. And this is no small thing. No matter what your position on the end times, no matter how you understand the details, the orthodox, universally held Christian understanding is that Christ is coming again and that it matters for his people. The victory of the Lamb of God who came in humility, but when he comes, he comes back in power and majesty. So as we open Matthew 24 today, we're going to anticipate that glorious day, and we're going to look at the final signs that kind of precede his coming. Uh, it started with that abomination of desolation, and it carries through in this series of things that continue to happen. And the first one that we're going to see is these counterfeit Christs, that Christ is the king, that he is the promised king, that he is the anticipated king, but that others will put themselves forth uh, to take over that position. And what accompanies this particular sign is the potential, at least, for great confusion. Look at verse 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. And I want to stop there for a moment because it says then, and we have to recognize that there's a sequential order to these things. Uh, when are we talking about? Well, we're talking really about these things that got kicked off back in verse 15. This is all related. It's talked about an abomination of desolation, and then at that time, a particular distress, a trouble and a tribulation that is unique, that is different. Verse 22, if those days, those particular times had not been cut short, then no one would survive. And that's the context here that's really important that Matthew is keeping us or that Jesus is keeping us in this sequence of things that is happening. He says, then at that time, during this great distress, during those days that if they hadn't been cut short, no one would survive. At that time, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ or there he is, do not believe it. This is another sign that the king is coming quickly. And that is that there are false Christ claiming that the Christ is here. And you say, that sounds vaguely familiar and it should. Because earlier on in Matthew 24, as he began to talk about those things that would characterize the end, way back in verse 5, he said that many would come in his name claiming to be the Christ and would lead many astray. If you were to look at Matthew 24, verse 11, he said that there were false prophets who would come and would deceive with what they were teaching. And now we come down to verse 23, and we have to ask why. Why does he say it again? Is he bringing back the idea of general distress? And there are a lot of good and godly people who think that, who think that we've come back uh, now to Matthew and Jesus talking about a time of general distress that's going to come. And I don't think the context leads us that way. I think the context, once again, brings us to a particular thing that is happening. And there's a different emphasis here. It's not simply people claiming to be Christ. It's now people saying that Christ has arrived, that the promised one has come. And that's deceptive. 
And it's deceptive because when Christ comes again, it will not be something that you need to be informed about secondhand. That is going to be a major theme that covers the next several verses. That the coming of Christ is going to be absolutely unmistakable. So there's a change in emphasis, but there's also a change in what these people do. It's not just a claim to be Christ or a teaching that leads people astray. Look at verse 24. For at this time, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. These deceivers who are going to come are going to be able to do things that are beyond human explanation. And if you're like me and you're skeptical to begin with, you always see the trick. The magicians have their tricks, and we we recognize that as we look at false teachers, even within the broad realm of Christianity, we recognize that people do fake signs and they get exposed for their falsehoods quite a bit. This isn't that. This is deception coming that has real power behind it. But here's what we need to remember, that power does not equate to truth that although these false Christs and false prophets have the ability to do things that are not possible under human ability, that does not equate to truth. And that is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. If you were to go back to the law, all the way back in Deuteronomy 13, Moses is warning the people about false prophets. And he says, even if someone should come and do these great signs and wonders and what they say comes true, if they do all of these things that you can't explain, but then they say, let's go and follow after other gods, he says, don't listen to them. If they have power, but they pull you away from what God has said, they don't come from God. They are deceptive, and ultimately they're supposed to be killed. Power does not equate with truth. And here's maybe the more difficult thing for us to process, and that is that experience doesn't equate to truth. That just because something looks powerful with our eyes, just because something appears to be true, that's not the measure of truth. Paul talks about it in... When he writes to the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about a man of lawlessness who is to come. So the Thessalonians were worried that they had missed the coming of Christ. And Paul says, you haven't missed it. There are these clear signs that are going to come. And one of those is that the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed and that he is going to be satanically empowered to do some remarkable things. Or we look all the way forward to Revelation chapter 13. God gives John a glimpse of what is coming. In Revelation 13, uh, we're introduced to this beast who comes, who is worshipped by the whole world. Language very similar to Daniel, a blasphemous, boastful beast who is followed after by the whole world, who's given power for a specific period of time, also calling up what Daniel wrote in his prophecies. And in Revelation 13, we're introduced to a second beast who uh, leads the worship of the first He causes the world to go after, to pursue, and to worship that first beast. And it says that he accomplishes great signs and wonders, that he makes even fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that that beast is allowed to work in the presence of the first beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. See, there's great power and great deception that are coming. And deception is always present. We recognize that. The people in the wilderness generation needed to be prepared. The disciples needed to be prepared. You and I need to be prepared. And this final generation that is going to come needs to be prepared. And the reason is because we are people that are generally easily led astray. Uh, Our grasp on what is true is sometimes really, really fickle. 
And all it takes is something impressive to begin to lead us away. People chase after the miraculous. People flock to see the remarkable. And the danger is, when that is designed to be deceptive, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. The whole design behind these things is to lead people astray. But that's why Jesus is warning them. He said this design to lead them astray and if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand because this might seem like a threat to the plan, doesn't it? I mean, if false Christs and false prophets can come and they can mirror the power of God, Revelation 13 talks about calling down fire from heaven. That should sound fairly familiar. Elijah on Mount Carmel, what did he do to prove God's power? Called down fire from heaven in the presence of the people. And now someone is coming, people are coming who can mirror those. What hope do people have who are trying to be faithful? In the middle of the worst destruction, in the middle of the worst trial and the worst tribulation ever to come on humanity, what hope do people have of not being deceived? Well, the answer is on their own, they don't. But what have we seen over and over in Matthew and really through all of God's word is that God knows and preserves his people. The design is to deceive, if possible, even the elect, but the implication is that it's not because God holds his people. What's fascinating is, we don't have time to go into all of these in detail, but if you were to read through Revelation 13, this phrase comes up over and over, it was given to him, it was given to him, it was given to him. And you talk about this person who to come, this leader, this blasphemous, terrible leader with great power, but it's all been given to him. We're reminded that there is no power that God does not allow, and that is even to his enemies, but only for a time. Even the power to deceive is overseen and superintended by the sovereignty of God. And instead of that delusion and deception that's offered at this time, what Jesus offers is clarity. He says, I've told you beforehand so that they know what's coming. The disciples know what's coming. We know what's coming. During that time at the end, this generation will have clear warnings on what's to come. He says, so if they say these things to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Here's what he's saying. If someone has to tell you that Christ has come, you can just dismiss that claim absolutely. He said, that doesn't sound fair. I mean, Jesus said he was going to come back, so shouldn't we at least investigate these claims? Shouldn't we keep an open mind? Shouldn't we be cautious uh, and, you know, critical, certainly, but shouldn't we assume that maybe Christ has come? Can't we just go and check these things out? And the answer is no. And here's why, because when the king comes back, not only will you know it, but everyone will know about it. You won't have to be told. You won't have to search. Jesus says, these signs that I'm giving you, these signs that precede my coming in this generation are going to be unmistakable. We had just an odd situation when we were doing ministry up in Canada. There was a family who who said that they were pregnant, and not only pregnant, but pregnant with twins, and everybody was thrilled for them. But as months passed, there was no sign that pregnancy was happening. None of the obvious signs of pregnancy, not only no morning sickness, no weight gain, but no doctor visits, no posting of, you know, ultrasound pictures and 
questions were kind of avoided about when they had gone to see their doctor and how things were progressing and what they needed and how they were feeling. It was just a very bizarre situation. But as people began to observe, they noticed that the signs didn't match up with the claims, and it turns out they were never pregnant in the first place, and it was still this whole big thing to untangle. But you could tell that what was supposed to be happening wasn't happening. Babies don't just come out of nowhere. The kingdom is not just going to come out of nowhere. There are these signs, just like Jesus said, as birth pangs increase, that there are signs that the coming of the kingdom is imminent. Jesus says, if you don't see the signs, then don't worry about me being hidden in some inner room, because when I come, it is going to be unmistakable. And then he gives these really remarkable pictures about how unmistakable it's going to be. As lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be like standing outside on a dark night and having the sky ripped open by lightning. No one, I mean, especially here in California when we don't see it every day, no one mistakes the coming of a thunderstorm, do they? You're standing there and the sky is just brilliant with lightning. Jesus says it's going to be that clear. And then another picture that he gives that's not particularly inviting. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is going to be a time of death and decay and destruction, and I think that certainly plays into this picture. Uh, But more broadly, we all know what vultures are. They're carrion eaters. They eat dead things. If you see a group of vultures gathered together on the ground, you don't wonder what they're doing. They're not making dinner party plans. They are not setting up their next social gathering. If vultures are gathered together someplace, what is in the middle of them? Something dead. This sign means this is the reality. And that's what Jesus is saying. These signs indicate a reality that has come. And you will not need to wonder and you will not need to question it. So don't be misled. And that theme of clear signs really accompanies this all the way through the rest of the passage. It's going to impact how we think about the verses that come not only this week in our context, but next week as well. But Jesus now moves on and he tells his disciples what the next sign that accompanies his return will be. These are all coming now in sequence and they're all leading up to the coming of the Son. And now not only are there signs on earth, all of these things so far have been related to what goes on in the earth, even starting with wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and then this abomination of desolation that's set up in a particular place. And now he pulls back and he says not only are there going to be signs on the earth, but there's going to be signs in the skies. And these signs in the skies are going to deal, first of all, with the powers of the heavens ultimately failing. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, we've got to stop there for a moment. There's going to be false Christs and false prophets, and they're going to show you some incredible things. Their desire is to lead astray. Their desire is to deceive. But in contrast to that, there is a coming Christ who is true. And this right here is a further answer. We have to remember, the disciples asked the question, what are the signs of your coming? When is your coming? And what are the signs? This is another sign of when. Now he's saying immediately after the tribulation of those days. Those days of unique and terrible trouble, different than at any point in human history. Those days that are shortened for the sake of the elect. Then this is what comes. This isn't just general trouble. This is a specific time with a beginning and an end. 
Labor pains lead to childbirth. The pains on the earth are going to come to a specific and definite end with the return of Jesus Christ. False Christs and false prophets that would attempt to take his place, to take his throne, to take his glory. But the true Christ is coming, and the end is going to come with signs in earth and now signs in the heavens. At, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sun will be darkened, and when the sun is darkened, the moon won't give its light as the moon reflects the sun. What he says is these, the two great lights to humanity, the two great physical objects of light, are going to cease to give their light. And not only will they fail, but there will be stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven themselves will be shaken. It's this pictured as this drastic event that not only uh, touches the earth, but touches what we see in the sky, and not only the sun and the moon, those two kind of primary things, but even the stars and all of the heavens themselves seem to be failing and fading. And if we think about it, this makes sense. Why is it that the coming of Christ doesn't only impact this earth, but impacts all of creation? And it's because sin not only impacts us as individuals and we as people, sin impacts all of creation. If we were to read through Romans chapter 8, Paul writes that creation itself groans under the weight of sin, that it longs for this coming time when the sons of God are revealed that creation itself was subject to decay, was subject to the power of sin. And when the king comes, he restores what sin has broken. He restores what sin has brought under its curse. This isn't just dealing with earth. This is dealing with the fact that when the king comes, he restores all things in his creation. But once again, Jesus isn't just pulling these images out of nowhere. This isn't just a Matthew 24 issue that we have to look through and figure out what it means. This is all dealing with prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. This is all built on the writing of what the prophets have said. Remember, 700 years before this, Isaiah talked about much of this. I want you to turn with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 13. 700 years before Christ, and Isaiah writes about what is going to come, not only what Christ is going to be and what Christ is going to do, but Isaiah writes about what is coming for his people. In Isaiah 13, he's writing about judgment that is going to come, and in that context, in that particular context of Isaiah 13, he's warning the people of the coming of Babylon, that Babylon is going to come and wipe out God's people, particularly in the southern portion of the kingdom, for their, for their rebellion, for their rejection of the covenant promises of God, for their idolatry, for their wickedness. Babylon is coming and will judge them. But in the middle of that prophecy about the coming judgment of Babylon, Isaiah does what he does often throughout his book, and that is he pulls back and he looks at a greater event that is still to come. Something that is uh, much wider in scope than the judgment that is going to come on Jerusalem. If you're in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Sounds very reminiscent of what Matthew is saying. Look at verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and punish the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Not just a judgment on Judah, not just a judgment on Babylon, a judgment of the world that is coming. Verse 12, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. This judgment that's coming that is going to make people rare. A judgment that is going to impact the population of the earth to come. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. The wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. This coming time of judgment that is worldwide in its scope, that is fierce in its anger, and that involves even the powers in the heavens. If you were to turn to Isaiah 34, you don't have to do that now. Isaiah 34, 4, he says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies will roll up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall like leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. You can go to Joel 2 and see him use the same imagery. We can go to Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Haggai and all of these places that use similar languages as they describe the day of the Lord. Terror for the nations. Trouble and distress that refines and purifies God's people and brings them to repentance and God's wrath and justice poured out on a sinful world. And all of these things are the prelude to the coming of the Messiah in power and glory. We could once again look forward to the book of Revelation and see what John writes. He, He writes about this time that is coming. And in Revelation 6, as the seals are broken... Revelation 6, verse 12, John says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You cannot read that without hearing Matthew 24 and Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 13 and all of the minor prophets. We tend to want to skip to the end and find out what's coming. You have to understand that it is built on what the prophets have said. That God has long told his people what the end is going to look like. So the coming of Christ is going to be accompanied by these unmistakable signs in the created order. You can turn back to Matthew 24 now. But the question is, how do we know that these things are going to happen. And that is a legitimate question that people argue with and debate about, is how do we know that this isn't just a failure of spiritual powers, that this isn't just a failure of earthly powers? After all, uh, the sun and the moon are used to describe physical or earthly powers sometimes. Sometimes the stars used to describe angelic powers. Why would we think that this actually means that the sun and the moon will fade, that stars will fall? Um, And I think there are several reasons, but uh, the most convincing one to me has been the way that Matthew has used prophecy all the way through his book. Again, lots of ways that we could understand this. Lots of places that we could go to to justify an understanding. But if you look at how Matthew uses prophecy all the way through his book, uh, how is it fulfilled? Right from the very beginning, chapter 1, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And Jesus is born of a virgin, and he is Emmanuel, not just someone called God with us, but someone who is truly God and truly man. 
Matthew chapter 2. He points back to the prophets and he says, O you, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for, some, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. A voice crying out in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus living and doing his work in and around Capernaum in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus healing diseases in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus saying that the temple was going to come down stone by stone in Matthew 24. As you look to how Matthew has talked about prophecy fulfilled, and you look to what we know has been uh, fulfilled up to this point, as difficult as the prophets can be sometimes to figure out their timing, as unbelievable as what they say seems to be at times, we find that exactly what they wrote in the most plain sense possible is what ends up happening. As Matthew writes here, as Jesus speaks here, the implication is that before the Son of Man comes again, there are going to be unmistakable signs not only on earth, but in the heavens. So what have we seen up to this point? Broad signs that tell you the kingdom is not now. Increasing signs that tell you it is coming close. And then specific signs. An abomination of desolation that calls you to flee. Signs of false Christs and false prophets who wield this uh, deceptive power. Signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And now Christ talks about the final sign, this culminating sign. And the final sign of the coming of the king is what's called the sign of the sun. Not only are they going to see all of these things happening, but finally, in the end, they are going to see him. And when they see him, they are going to see him in glory. Look at verse 30. Then, when? After these things, after the tribulation of those days, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. When Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, it was in absolute obscurity. Mary and Joseph knew. The ones in that household knew. Some shepherds in a field knew. But his birth went largely unnoticed in human history. Here in Matthew 24, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the beginning of that Passion Week in the triumphal entry, uh, all of Jerusalem is stirred. Tens of thousands coming and flocking to see him, but really, in the scope of human history, it's very small. His entry into Jerusalem passes with barely a blink on the international geopolitical stage. Understand that when he comes again, it will not be in obscurity. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. If they say that Jesus is in some inner room, do not believe them. If they say that Jesus is out in the wilderness and you've got to go find him, like where's Waldo, but where's Jesus out there, do not believe them. Because when he comes, everyone will see. He is going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And this is, again, deeply grounded in what the prophets have said. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and those visions that he had, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him the idea that when the sun comes, he comes on the clouds. The law talks about the Lord being enshrouded in clouds. We read Psalm 97 at the start of our service today. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Fire goes out before him and burns up his enemies. We can skip forward to Acts chapter 1 as Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he ascends before them into heaven and is caught up in the clouds. And the disciples are there kind of left open mouth staring up. And all of a sudden, two men, angels, appear before them and say, uh, essentially, what are you doing? Uh, Why are you standing there looking after him? He's given you work to do. Don't you understand that he's going to come back in the same way that he left? And you see this beautifully consistent picture all the way through God's word that as Christ comes, he comes in clouds, and it's not just clouds, he comes in glory. We get little pictures of what that glory looks like. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we got just a glimpse of the glory of Christ as the cloud surrounds them and puts the disciples on their face. I want you to turn with me to Revelation 19. So I want us to see again another glimpse of this glory that is going to surround Christ as he comes at the culmination of all things. Revelation starts with a picture of the risen and glorified Christ. Eyes like fire unmistakable in his glory. It goes through letters to the churches who are called to be faithful as they wait for him. It goes through sequence of events that, pre- that uh, anticipate his coming. And then we come to Revelation 19 and find your way to verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. That place where those remarkable signs have occurred is now going to give way to the greatest sign of all. Here's the Christ. I saw heaven opened to behold a white horse. And the one who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's Christ coming in power and glory and on a white horse. How did he come into Jerusalem at the beginning of this Passion Week? Humble and mounted on a donkey. How does he come back? It's not a humility. When he comes again, it is in power and unmistakable glory. His eyes are like a flame of fire, just like was pictured in Revelation 1 and Ezekiel and all these great glimpses of the glory of God that we can barely put into our human limited vocabulary trying to encapsulate the majesty of the King of Kings coming in all of his glory to do justice. References back to Psalm 2 as he rules over the nations with a rod of iron because when the King comes, he does not just come in glory. When the King comes, justice comes with him. Stay in Revelation 19 for a moment. It says he judges and makes war. He does not come in peace. He has done that already. He has offered peace. He has offered himself as the sacrifice for sins. When he comes again, it will not be in peace. When he comes again, it will be in justice. 
a robe dipped in blood, his mouth that strikes down the nations and rules them with a rod of iron. Again, drawn from Psalm 2, these prophetic passages that talk about what is to come. If you look down to verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. All of the nations of the earth gathered to make war against the coming king, but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those. Does that sound familiar? Like Matthew 24? See, even though there's this great deception, God through Christ overcomes all of these things and these two are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It is a picture not only of severe but of complete judgment. When Christ comes, when the sun appears, there is no more hiding your sin. There is no more justifying your rebellion. And if you flip back to Matthew 24 now, it's why Jesus says that when the Son of Man appears, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. If we try to put this into a historical context as something that has already occurred, as terrible as that abomination under Antiochus Epiphanes was, as terrible as the destruction of Jerusalem was in A.D. 70, as terrible as all of the horrific things that have occurred throughout all of human history, as terrible as all of those things are, nothing has brought all the tribes on the earth to mourning at the exposure of their sin. When the sun comes, men recognize the king. And in recognizing the king, they recognize their universal failure. But not only is there justice against his enemies, there's also justice and vindication for his people. Because on that day, there's triumph. Triumph for Christ over his enemies, but there's also triumph for his people. Uh, look at what Matthew writes next. Verse 31 and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. When these things happen, when the signs have finally come and gone, when the Son of God returns, then the saints are finally gathered. <laughs> the abomination of desolation is coming. Run. They're going to be scattered through great persecution and great trouble and great trial. God doesn't lose track of one of his people and he gathers them all and he gathers them from the four corners of the world all over, as it were. He gathers his elect from the four winds from everywhere that they are on earth. And not only, and this is, I love this part of the picture, not only are they gathered on earth, but they're gathered from one end of heaven to the other as well. It is not only this reunion of saints on earth, it's this, this bringing together of saints on earth with the saints in heaven because you read in Revelation 19 as we just did, and Christ does not come from heaven alone. He comes with his army behind him clothed in white linen. If we were to back up in Revelation 19 just before that, we're told that those are the saints clothed in white garments. He comes to gather his people on earth, the remnant that he has preserved for himself, and with him he brings those of his saints that he already has gathered in heaven. It would seem like this time of great trouble could have nothing good that comes out of it. Justice brings glory to God. 
And in the end, he will have justice on his enemies. And in the end, he will finally vindicate and bring justice to his people. No longer scattered. For 2,000 years plus, really since the beginning, and God called Israel to himself, to be counted among the people of God has brought hardship in this world. When the king comes again, that ceases to be true. And at that time, all peoples, all nations, men of every tribe and tongue and language will recognize, maybe we could put it the way Paul does, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that is a lot of very specific and very detailed information. That is a lot of passages that we could go to uh, that we really don't have time to dive all the way down into. So we've got to wonder what's the point. What is the prophetic point to all of this? Uh, because I don't know about you, but I want a little bit more. I would love to know more details about what it looks like. I would love to know more details about when this is coming. I would love to have an even clearer picture. And we need the picture. We need the picture to remind us that God is in control. We need the picture to remind us that that this earth isn't our home. But do you know what Jesus does for the next 50 verses in Matthew 24 and starting Matthew 25? He doesn't say this is further an understanding of what's going to happen in the kingdom. He will get there. He doesn't say this is what happens immediately after the sun returns. He will get there. He does talk about that. But for the next 50 verses, do you know what he does? He says, this is what you're supposed to do. He says, you need to be ready. He says, a characteristic of the people of God throughout every age has to be that they are ready for the king's return. So just as a preview, that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks as we look at those passages. But for today, two things that I want us to think about. First of all, We have to know how to define truth. We already live in a day and age where truth is relative, where I can have my truth and you can have your truth, and as long as your truth and my truth don't don't conflict, or or as long as you don't try to put your truth onto my truth, then we're okay, and everybody can have their own understanding of what is absolutely true for them. We need to be a people that understand that truth is not relative, that there is absolute objective truth, whether you think there is, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, or whether you even know about it or not, there is objective truth that defines all things. And that means we had better know where to find it. Because we can be misled awfully easily. A slick presentation, a well-worded treatise, false signs and wonders that are satanically empowered are powerful draws away from the truth. Maybe we hear this sometimes even in our own circles, even within the church. Well, God told me, God led me, I saw, I felt. We are a people that are often governed by our experience. We need the gentle but firm reminder that experience does not define truth. This does. And where our experience conflicts with what God has said is true in his word, something has to give, and it's not this. That though someone should come and display remarkable power To draw us away from the truth doesn't redefine truth. That you and I might think, see, feel, understand, experience something that is contrary to what God's Word says does not make our experience true. We submit all things to the truth of God's Word. And by the way, that is extremely comforting. 
That is extremely stabilizing in a world that cannot offer truth to know that there is truth, that truth exists and that it can be found. And beyond that, we have, the people, we have to be a people that know how to maintain hope. Knowing what is to come should give us great hope. Even knowing that great difficulty and trouble are going to come should give us hope because we're reminded that this world is not our home, that we wait for something better. Even knowing that Satan himself is going to be involved in bringing great distress and even great deception brings us hope because we understand that he is a defeated foe simply waiting for final judgment. The king is coming, and it matters I do not know what you are facing in your individual lives. It might just be a struggle to do the right thing in an uncomfortable circumstance. To do the right thing at work when work doesn't want you to. To tell the truth when it'll put you at odds with your friends. Or, or it might be something crushing and devastating that barely leaves you with the strength to get out of bed in the morning. Whatever the scope is of our trial and our tragedy and our difficulty, knowing that the King is coming matters. Because Christ overcomes all of it. And in the end, his saints will dwell with him for all eternity. And it'll make the period of this life, even if the whole number of our years was covered by nothing but tragedy, it will make it seem brief and fleeting and even insignificant in the scope of all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, lots of opinions, lots of feelings, lots of understandings about what is to come, but one thing is sure, and that is that the King is coming again. You will fulfill your every promise, and you will have the honor that you are due. Lord, I pray that we're a people that live in great hope because of the coming of the King. I pray that we're a people that live as if we're ready for that coming, who strive to be obedient, not because we don't want to be punished, but Lord, who strive to be obedient because we want to please our Father. We want to please the King who has bought us with his own blood. And Lord, I pray that we're a people who eagerly preach the gospel to others, who know that when the King comes, the time for repentance will be at an end. Lord, I pray that you would continue to save people. The gospel would do its work and transform dead hearts to life in Christ. I pray that we are a part of that work as we seek to make disciples until you come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.